1: Welcome back. You are listening to Steel Talkin'. I'm your host, Geraldine Steele. Okay, first of all, from Dallas to Las Vegas to eastern Kentucky, we've been hearing about the severe and deadly flooding that has been all over the news recently. Now, does it have you wondering if your property and possessions are covered with insurance? Well, the Minnesota DNR has a place you can go to find help. To give us more details about it, we welcome DNR State Flood Plain Manager, Seal Strauss to the program, courtesy of the John Schuster Caldwell Banker Hotline. Welcome, Seal. How are you, sir? Ma'am, um, I'm. Oh, doing ma'am! Well. Oh <laughs> my gosh! Bravo! <laughs> <laughs> that is great news. Okay, so are you the first woman to take this position in this
3: position in Minnesota? But many of my counterparts in other states are, are female. So there's actually quite a few of us in floodplain management that are, are female. Do you love it? I do enjoy it. It's it's uh, such an important area, trying to reduce risk for people, trying to make them um, safer when there are floods, be able to bounce back when there's flooding in their community. Such mm-hmm. important part of, of uh, helping people avoid those kinds of damages and losses.
1: The amazing thing is that insurance changes so often. A lot of us don't really remember or are not reminded to go and just check to see if you still have that same insurance. You know, talk to your insurance people and say, you know, if it's your home or something like this. But what the DNR does uh, with the flood plane is what I'm really interested in. Can you tell us about it?
3: Sure. Um, Looking at the bigger picture, FEMA tends to refer to it as their three-legged or four-legged stool because... For reducing risk, we've got flood insurance is just a part of it, making flood insurance available that's nationally backed. But then also we have um, identification of the higher risk areas, the FEMA flood maps. Uh, we have regulations at the local level that are based on state and federal minimum requirements to so that new buildings that are built are built safer and not in a way that they're shoving more water on other people. And then also there's, especially in the last 20, 30 years, there's been more of an effort to reduce that existing risk with uh, grants to help communities do buyouts of those more at-risk buildings or to build the big flood control projects and also some federal grants. So working
1: all those things together. Right. And we have to work with them all together. That's for sure. We need to. However, I must say, um, I actually talked about this about three years ago. Where is FEMA? Right, you you've mentioned FEMA. I know FEMA is very important when it comes to uh, climate crisis as well as floods and so much more. But I don't hear the that anymore. I don't hear FEMA is here. FEMA is there. They're gonna make sure that the people are taken care of. We're gonna make sure we get them to a safe space. Um, and so you work with FEMA sometimes, right? You get to connect with them and and find out what they're offering and what are the updates. You get to do that. Tell me if FEMA is as strong to you as it always has been.
3: It, it is. And uh, we are partners with them. So we're we're representing FEMA for many things to, with uh, where the go between with the local officials. But when there is a bigger um, disaster, when there's a presidential declaration, that's right. when FEMA really comes in and helps. So luckily, it, it's good news that we're not hearing about FEMA around Minnesota, because that means that we're not getting those huge storms and damage that they're seeing in other parts of the country. And we've had some really big storms, but because we've done a really good job of keeping people out of those areas and local communities have done a great job of of buying out those most at-risk people and putting in flood control projects. Uh, a couple recent examples in Rochester in 2019, they had a, a big, storm, a big rain that was nearly as big or similar magnitude to the one they had in 78, that was devastating. But since then, they've put in a bunch of reservoirs and done a lot of other improvements. So when the big rain came, all the media was reporting about were some cows that got washed into a stream and a guy that got trapped on a picnic table. And thank goodness they weren't talking about all the major damage. But FEMA is very busy in in other parts of the, the country with recent big storms.
1: So a lot of the flooding that is happening around the country, we're hearing that um, these floods have been so devastating that they don't even know if we can um, come back from it, right? See, here in Minnesota, we used to have two rivers that would really overflow. It would reach that high point that we didn't want it ever to reach. And that has been a problem. What do you see now, though, with all of the rain that is happening uh, during the spring uh, months? And then here we are looking at the fall. We will also get more water. So are we as prepared as we need to be, even though we are not flooding all the time. We don't have to worry. We don't, we kind of just put it behind our minds. But I'm the one saying, if you own a home, please make sure you have the insurance. So um, tell me about the rivers, and then tell me what it is we need to do to make sure that we have the insurance.
3: Sure. Well, the rivers, we we still are worried about the rivers. That If if we get up above um, historic levels, it could Damage a lot of buildings, so communities um, they have response plans. They're they're doing the projects to reduce what risk they can. They're trying to be prepared for when there is a a, a bigger flood. Certainly the. The, the social media, they can get the word out better. Ms. Ms. Strauss, do you mind if I,
1: I apologize for interrupting? We absolutely have to go to Paul Douglas, our meteorologist, who wants to oh. know if we can cut in with a quick segment about the weather that is happening right now. We'll be right sure. back with you in a moment. Now we're going to continue our conversation with uh, Seal Strauss. She is the State Floodplain Manager for Minnesota DNR. Welcome back. I do apologize having to break in, but of course it was quite remarkable, um, Seal, that you and I are talking about this flooding uh, and how we have been so blessed in Minnesota. And now we're looking at tornadoes tonight. Amazing.
3: Right. Right. And any kind of of event is is important to be prepared for and listen to to the folks who are giving you the warnings. But well,
1: thank you, you for your patience. About,
3: Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Sure. You had asked about the big rivers, and um, certainly we we continue to be concerned about flooding on the big rivers. Those tend to be the spring floods, where we do more likely have a couple weeks of warning because of the gauges and forecasting that the National Weather Service and NOAA does. But in the recent decades, more and more of our storms are Big storms—six inches, eight inches, ten inches, even fourteen inches—that come in other parts of the the year, not just in the spring. They they can go from any time in the spring through the fall, and uh, that's becoming a bigger concern for many areas of the state. And when we talk about flood insurance, and I wanted to get back to there because that's what you had asked about earlier. Right, flood insurance. In your normal home insurance that you have for fire, hail, tornadoes, that doesn't cover, in most cases, it doesn't cover damage due to flooding. You have to get a separate flood insurance policy. And the main source of those flood insurance policies is through the the, the National Flood Insurance Program. And um, that came about in the late 60s. In 1968, the act was passed for the regulations, the mapping, the flood insurance, because private insurers, they you have a big flood come, they tend to have their policies in one area and it just they, they couldn't cover all those damages due to flooding. So they're spreading out the risk. They have this national flood insurance, but a lot of people don't realize that it's not covered by their normal home
1: insurance. And you do I have am a to, witness to that. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah. You can buy, it, but see, I, that happened to me in the nineties. And let me tell you, you know, we were on a hill as well, and the, the water was coming down like a river. And I called for insurance, and they said to me, "You would have to literally have all of downtown St. Paul in, a, a, you know, underwater before we would give you <laughs> this benefit or, or this uh, policy." So here we are today, and we're seeing the climate change change. We're witnessing it. Um, it how, what is the process for us to go after the insurance? How do we begin? You
3: actually normally can talk to the same person, the same agency, where you get your auto or home insurance. In most cases, they can get you a flood insurance policy. They're able to do that. Or you can contact FEMA's um, – um, you can go to their website, FloodSmart.org.gov.gov, is a good place to, to find agents in the area. But I would start with your own agent. They may need to talk to a specialist within their agency um, at their headquarters or something. But most flood insurance policies are sold through the normal agents that you deal with um, for your, your home and your auto.
1: And Many years ago, day, um, excuse me for interrupting, but many years sure. ago, we actually had um, the opportunity to, to try to get some insurance. And people could do it quickly. Nowadays, does it take a long process for you to get it? It doesn't
3: take that long for them to get the process, to get the policy in place. But um, if if you're getting a new loan, you can get a policy right away or or a new mortgage. But if you're just going out and buying a policy, there's a 30 day waiting period. So if you hear on the news that you're going to get a big flood in two days, you can't rush out and get a policy because it does have that 30 day waiting period before it's effective. Uh, Another and warning. Oh, go, ahead, go oh, ahead. yeah. Is is that um, the 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 policies are sold for the building, and then separately for contents. So, uh, folks that have their buildings in the the high risk mapped floodplain, there's yes. a, a re- national requirement that they they must get flood insurance. Their lenders will require them to get flood insurance. And a lot of times they just get it for the building because that's what the lender's making them do. But people want to be aware that you want to get it for both the building and your stuff. Um, And and a lot of the agents, the two biggest myths are agents telling people they can't get flood insurance because they're not in the mapped area. And that's absolutely not true. If you're in a participating community, over 95% of the people in Minnesota can get a flood insurance policy no matter where you are in the community. And then the other thing is not knowing that they can get content coverage.
1: You talked about mortgage. Let's talk about the homes, the homes that are old, you know, from the 1930s and 1920s up to today and then versus the newer homes. Does the insurance change at all? It, it will
3: be rated differently depending on how high the buildings were built and where they were built. So a lower building, it's going to be more expensive for the insurance if they're in a higher risk area. Um, A newer building, especially built in the last 50 years, should have been built higher, should have been built outside the, the riskiest areas. So that flood insurance should be cheaper.
1: My goodness, I've learned a lot from you tonight, Seal. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there any other piece of advice that is really important for the homeowners or uh, those that are in the buildings that don't trust it, (laughs) that sort of thing? Is there anything else you could say to those who are are looking at getting flood insurance? Uh, Boy,
3: look at whether you're in a low area. It's not just people next to big rivers. There's a lot of low stormwater areas. Areas that, um, that people may not realize that they're at risk, and it's a good idea to get it.
1: I live over in North Minneapolis, and it used to be a rainforest in this area um, it's many, 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 many years ago. And I, I often look and see some of the waters now being captured. Captured more in certain areas than I've ever seen. So, yeah, uh, you know, we have to all stay on top of this. I'm so happy that you are a, a part of the MNDNR and as a flood plane, the state flood plane manager, I'm excited to have you tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank
3: you so much for the opportunity.
1: All right. I hope to have you on again and be a little longer. <laughs> take care. You're happy thank you. yes. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. As you've already heard, we are updating, uh, getting an update from uh, Paul Douglas, of course, and Jonathan Lowe. We'll keep keep you posted on the weather tonight. Uh, Make sure that you pay attention. That's important. My next guest I'm excited about because, of course, the number of women working in STEM-related careers is on the rise. That makes me so happy. But according to the Census Bureau, women still make up just 27% of the STEM workforce. In physics, the number is even lower, where females are outnumbered four to one. Females, should say women, goodness. (laughs) Julie Hogan is a professor of physics and engineering at Bethel University. She's here to talk about the importance of women's voices and perspectives in this area of science. Thank you so much for joining us, Julie Hogan. Really appreciate you being patient. Thanks,
0: no problem. Physics on display tonight in the weather.
1: I tell you, my goodness, and forgive us if we have to break in for more weather. But Understood. I want to start out by asking you about um, your background and how you led, have been led to this incredible um, movement of STEM.
0: Well, I am a high-energy particle physicist, uh, and what that means is that I like to study the particles and the forces that made up our, make up our universe, especially if we're talking about like right at the beginning, of the universe, which sounds very abstract, um, but involves much more hands-on work than you would think. Uh, so I got my graduate, undergraduate uh, and PhD degree in physics, and then I joined an experiment at the CERN laboratory that's in Switzerland uh, to do research. So I wasn't actually even sure that I wanted to be a professor until a friend of mine, we were eating lunch, and he tells me about, you know, an opportunity to apply at, at Bethel, where I'm working now, and I decided to give it a shot, you know. I was like, what's the worst that could happen? So I gave it a shot, and uh, I have just loved the chance to work with students and teach them physics. It's super motivating to watch young people get excited about the things that I love.
1: Um, How young young are we talking? How young? Yeah, like what ages are you teaching?
0: I uh, will, in fact, we start class tomorrow morning, and so I will have a room full of probably about 17 to 19-year-olds.
1: Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Bravo. <laughs> they need it. We need it. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Um, why do you feel the like like the number of women in physics is so low? Because it's been low for a long time, but now it's eking up. How low is it confer- uh, um, considering the the numbers of men that, that are a part of STEM?
0: It has been low for a long time. You're exactly right. I was just reflecting that uh, actually the, the percentage that you were mentioning, four to one, uh, is, is basically accurate, and that's not very different from when I was in college, um, which was shock, shockingly to me already like 15 to 20 years ago. Um, and so, so it's, it's on the rise, but very slowly. And we're already seeing that in our college students, our undergraduate students, we're seeing that four-to-one ratio. Um, so this is coming from choices that young women make when they're teenagers, when they're in high school. Uh, and part of that is going to be awareness. People are drawn to what their parents do. People are drawn to what they you know, what they see adults doing around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then part of that is, is probably also very driven by just not feeling part of the group, not seeing yourself in the group.
3: Um, yeah. You know, here's talk. the thing
1: for me, yeah. forgive me for interrupting, but here's the thing for me. I that's get so fine. frustrated um, when young women are discouraged to get into STEM and discouraged mm-hmm. to learn more about physics and move up and up and up so they can get those high paying jobs that bring mm-hmm. them such joy as well. Um, it's frustrating. And that's what I'm concerned about. We are seeing an increase. Yes. But will we continue to see an increase in these young women mm-hmm. that really, really want to be a part of STEM?
0: Well, and one of the things we've, that, to, to that point that we've heard is, is that talking to some of these women who are, in, who are coming to college, what they're drawn to uh, is wanting to make an impact on people. They want to help people. Uh, and that's a repeating, a repeating phrase we hear over and over, I want to help people. Uh, and so when you look at STEM disciplines like biology or social sciences, the ratios are often much better. There are many more women able to participate um, equitably in those fields. And so one of the things we have to do as physicists is work on helping people understand that you can help people uh, through physics. Like I, I was actually thinking these storm chasers they were just talking to have probably studied a lot of physics. And now here they are helping people avoid the storms. Um, right. Anytime you go, <laughs> you go out and you have an x-ray. Have you ever you've had an x-ray at, at the doctor? Well, that doctor and nurse are the ones, you know, helping you with your problem. But the engineers are the ones who designed their machine and software to take that X-ray for you. And the particle physicist 130 years ago who discovered an X-ray, just doing fundamental experiments in a laboratory is what we have to thank for that all these years later. So uh, you can still help people, but it's a little less direct.
1: Well, this past summer, I believe you, you led a group of students and alumni as you participated virtually in the 10th anniversary of the Higgs discovery. Could you tell us what that's about?
0: Absolutely. So we uh, you know, it's one of an example of one of the opportunities that that you can have as a as a college student studying physics. Uh, uh, About 10 years ago in high energy physics, we uh, discovered at the CERN experiments a particle that we call the Higgs boson. uh, And it's kind of the capstone of our current model of all the particles and forces in the universe and how they hang together and interact with each other. So for us, that was just a humongous milestone. Uh, And the fact that we're already 10 years out from that is it was just jaw dropping and we had to pause and celebrate. So we had students, uh, faculty members, um, alumni call in on Zoom with all of the other United States universities who work on this same uh, same experiment. That's like that's like 50 universities. Um, so wow. we had a huge number of of uh, institutions and, and people joined on this Zoom so that we could hear hear lectures and reflections and things about about this particle. It was really exciting.
1: What do you think you could possibly do to help these young people once they get involved and they love it, love it, love it until someone starts mm-hmm. discouraging them or maybe they don't have as much time or maybe they're getting distracted with other options? Um, what would you say to them to help th- keep them going up and further when it comes to STEM. This is so important. And, and by the way, I look at those Google doodles all the time and <laughs> I am amazed when they're talking about women from a hundred years ago who were mm-hmm. big in physics. We never heard about them. I mean, when I was mm-hmm. growing up, I didn't hear about all of these women doing these great things, but today young people are hearing about women doing great things. So what would you say to them now to keep them on the track?
0: Absolutely. I would say two main things. I would say first of all, if this is something you're excited about, lean in. There are mm. so many research opportunities. There is no, uh, you know, women do not need to feel behind the ball game in in doing active research, especially when you're a, when you're a young college student. Um, just this summer, I w- you know, my experiment, uh, the CMS experiment, has added two internships that were specific for. Uh, groups who are underrepresented in physics and other experiments in other fields of physics are doing the same thing. So, so the opportunities are out there. Uh, lean into that
1: and recognize
0: that doing those types of things is going to build so many skills that are transferable to getting a job. So don't ever worry that you can't get a job with a physics degree or an, en- or, well, not many people worry about that with an engineering degree, but, uh, but even with physics, People are out there wanting to hire uh, students coming out with the skills in, in programming and in critical thinking and problem solving that you get from doing research in physics. And the second piece of advice I would give is to get a mentor. Um, you know, find a, find other students to keep connected with. Find a professor or a teacher that you trust who you can just, you know, talk to, get advice from. Find a mentor.
1: Are there um, teachers that are skilled in making sure that they stay on top of students that are absolutely uh, involved in wanting to know more and more about physics? Or are we really challenged by not having enough counselors or enough teachers that know enough about physics to really stay on top of it? Because the older these students get, the more they're going to know. And maybe um, it may be difficult for some of the teachers to stay on top of that. And if so, if it is hard to hold on to them or what, what they're learning now, what do we do about it to make sure that they stay on top of it? Mm.
0: Well, I would point people. I would point people to their high school physics and, and other science teachers. Um, mm-hmm. I think those people are, are very, uh, you know, their voices are are not heard loudly enough uh, in our right. field. Honestly, my my first and most important mentor in my becoming a physicist was my high school chemistry teacher. I was open with him about my interests and my excitement, and he recognized that it was not chemistry but physics. And so he, like did a lot of work to get doors open for me. Um, So I think your high school STEM teachers, they have a lot to offer in terms of helping, and they have a lot of connections with the universities in their area so that they can help students uh, get where they need to be.
1: Julie Hogan, you are quite remarkable. I am honored to have you on tonight. Professor of Business and Engineering at Bethel University. Congratulations. I hope you continue to love it. It's a lot of work, and you seem to be up for it. So I hope to join okay. have you join us again in the next year, okay? All right. All right. Um, okay, we're going to take a break and come back and wrap up this hour in just a moment. It is now 855 here at WCCO. Welcome back as we wrap up this hour. I do want to make a statement about what Professor said. Uh, She said, we all have a stake in the universe. Okay. That's it. We all have a stake in the universe. Even though a lot of the work we do involves math and there isn't a lot of ambiguity when you're working with numbers, having multiple perspectives, continually helps us assess and determine the important work that we are doing. And we are talking about women, girls that are getting involved in STEM. They are learning about physics and they love it. We want to keep them there. We want to encourage them to keep going. Because remember, there were those that came way before them and they will honor them, I know they will, they will move forward and I can't wait to see all that they can be, all that they can do while they're, while they're working so hard to um, meet their goals. And I must say, Jonathan, my uh, niece... Um, that was just in town. Her son, my great nephew, um, is so brilliant. He's 14 or 15 years old and absolutely brilliant. Companies and corporations are coming after him and and schools are coming after him asking if if he will come to their school. It's remarkable. It's never too late. If you have a a girl in your life, uh, a daughter in your life, a niece in your life, make sure you give them an opportunity to know what STEM is all about and that they can actually be a part of it. So, so, um, we may think that it's not important, but it is. Thank you, Professor Julie Hogan, for joining us. She's Professor of Business and Engineering at Bethel University. Now, of course, coming up next, <laughs> we are absolutely going to go right into Center Stage. And I absolutely love that hour, period. Um, it's a time for us to talk about arts and entertainment. And, um, we have got some great guests tonight. So, uh, thank you so much, Jonathan, for booking the, the hour, the two hours we have just gone through. And of course, coming up next is Center Stage and then the mom Michael Auer. Yes, he will be joining us. We'll be back. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's over
2: here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. <laughs>